Just want to say good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see all of you here. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. I haven't actually been up here for a few weeks. I think it's been like a month, actually. Um, I was kind of quiet quitting. You guys know what that is? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it was nice because I, uh, as a pastor, I have to sit in the front all the time. But my natural inclination is to sit in the back. Kind of one of those uh, back row Baptist, I guess you could say. Um, so I see all of you back there. It was a totally different experience, you know, being back there. Um, but I'm back up front now, so sorry for all of you. Um, today we are um, two weeks away from finishing something we started over two years ago. So we started the books of Samuel. We were in First and Second Samuel. Uh, we started in January 2021, and now we are in March 2023, if you can believe it. We're in the future, and we have two more sermons left. But I bring that up because we're not actually going to finish uh, the, the penultimate one, the second to last one today. Okay, so we're going to put it off a little bit. I just can't say goodbye yet. I'm trying to hold off. Today, we're actually doing something a little different. And today is a special day in a lot of ways. Our, our missions team, the first kind of short-term trip we've ever sent out or, or, or organized, uh, it, the team is gone. They're in Costa Rica right now. Uh, so some of your favorite guys are down there. Um, you could be praying for them. Uh, a few people in our church had babies in the past few weeks. So that's really a praise. And we have more on the way, apparently. Um, and today we're actually having something outside after service, uh, something we do every once in a while. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Now, I- I'm not just going to give you my own thoughts about random stuff. We're actually going to be in the Bible as usual, but we're not going to be in 2 Samuel. Instead, I'd like to invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is also not the text we're going to be in, but by way of introduction, we're going to start here. Ephesians 4. After service today, we're actually going to have a ministry fair, okay, out in the um, fellowship hall. And a ministry fair, if you don't know what it is, it's basically a science fair, but instead of volcanoes that have baking soda and vinegar, uh, we have the different opportunities at our church to get involved, to plug in, to serve, to use your gifts, to meet some needs. So we just want to present that out there. We want to give people the opportunity uh, to get involved. So we're going to do that. So today, in light of that, we're going to be talking about ministry and serving in the church. And we're going to start with Ephesians 4, and we'll read verses 11 and 12. Ephesians 4, verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, And he, being Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, or pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, what Paul's getting at here is it's not just supposed to be the leaders, the official leaders in the church, the apostles or the pastors who do ministry, who make it all go, who make it all about themselves. Everyone's just focused on the few in the front. It's not about that. It's also not just about the especially gifted, the evangelists or the teachers and so forth who who have all the gifts, who are specially, uniquely supplied by God, who are supposed to take all the opportunities. That's not it either. What it says here is it's the saints who do the work of the ministry. It's the Christians. Everyone in church is supposed to be involved in building up the body of Christ. But here's the reality. 
Hey, this is what it's supposed to be, but here's the reality. If you talk to any church leaders, if you look on different, you know, organizational websites, you talk to pastors, the reality is churches don't look that different than any other organization. In most organizations, things kind of go by the Pareto principle. You might have heard that, the 80-20 rule, where eventually 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the funds. 20% of people give 80% of the time spent. The minority does the majority. Now, the truth is, it's not like that at Zoe, okay? Actually, uh, we, we want to thank you guys. We're not trying to, like, guilt you, like, where, where's the rest of you at? A lot of you serve, and we're thankful for that. But the reality is, every organization, as it grows, as time goes on, it moves in that direction. And the truth is, Zoe is kind of trending in that direction more and more. As churches grow, especially, it's concerning because a lot of people become spectators, where they show up to watch something. They watch a service. They watch some people play music. They watch some people sing. They watch a person get up here and preach. They watch some people talk to each other, and then they go home. Or people become consumers. They show up to evaluate the church, which is theologically the body of Christ, but they evaluate it as a service or as an organization or as a business even. How do I like it? How do I feel afterward? How are the snacks? How are the people? Do I like them? I remember my friend one time said his criteria for church was, do they have cool guys and do they have cute girls? And not in that order. Okay, that's what he was about. Now, thankfully, I was a cool guy. No, it's not that. I'm not saying that's how Zoe is, but I am saying that's how Zoe could easily become. I think every church wants to fight against that, but it is an uphill battle. So it's important that we talk about this because that's not the picture of what God's, uh, that's not the picture of what God's church is supposed to be according to God's word. The picture is everyone using their unique gifts to meet the needs of others, to serve them and ultimately to serve Christ so that God is glorified. First Peter four, it says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So today we're going to talk about something that a lot of churches talk about. We're going to talk about serving. And our hope is that we could get on the right path, stay on the right path. If we're deviating a little bit to just course correct, to get a little bit more onto the right path. But okay, usually how we would do this, how most people do this, there's two ways. Okay. So one, we preach about the great need. And there is a great need. We say, look, there are a lot of things that the church is called to do, big picture. And we can't do these things if there aren't people who can help. Right? Even little things that might not be spiritual, we need these things to happen if we're going to be able to do the spiritual things. We need people to maybe show up early to set up chairs so that people could sit and hear the word of God, etc. Someone who can do the PowerPoint or maybe you can buy some hymnals for us, whatever it is, so people could read the lyrics of songs. There's a great need. Or... We could talk about all the gifts that you have. We can kind of butter you up a little bit. And there's truth to that. The Bible does say that every Christian is uniquely gifted by God. It's a stewardship, right? You're blessed with different abilities, skills. The Holy Spirit is in you. So you need to use those things to build up the body, right? The body needs you. But instead, we're going to go a third way today. Something a little different. 
We're going to go to John 13. And this is our text for today, John chapter 13. So why don't you turn there with me? And we're going to be mostly in verses 12 through 17, but I'll start in verse 1. This is a super well-known story of Jesus. And yet, I don't think we've ever taught this um, at Zoe. Maybe I'm wrong, um, but I can't remember a time we ever taught it. Um, let me read from verse 1. I'll read to verse 17. We'll pray and we'll get into it. You probably know this story, but we're going we're to unpack it a little bit. John 13. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. This is where we're really going to get into today. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you this afternoon. God, this is a time for us to sit before your holy word. A time for us to remember that we worship a great God. And that it's a privilege for us to be here. To sing praises to you. To hear what you have revealed to us in the Bible. God, even to pray to you right now as our father. God, it's not something we deserve but it's something you've given by grace. And God, we humbly just come before you now and we ask that you would help us, that you would speak to us through your word. God, that you would maybe shake us out of um, the lethargy that comes, just the the distractions that we have, um, the hardness of heart uh, that develops over time. God, I pray that you would use your word to do something in us. And I pray, God, that this time would really be powerful for us, not because uh, the sermon is so emotional or whatever, God, but because your word is truth and it can cut deep into our hearts. It can give us faith. God, it can make us new. So, God, we look to you. We ask that your spirit would work in us, all for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you saw yourself clearly for the first time? Maybe someone said something to you. Maybe you saw a picture of yourself or something and you noticed something different. A blind spot was exposed. Whatever it was, did you ever have a moment where you realized, oh, that's who I really am? I remember uh, I heard a story once about this woman named Jane. Not Jane here, but a woman named Jane, and she was watching TV with her significant other, as they normally did, and she was sitting on the couch with him, and she had a blanket on, and her feet were sticking out of the blanket. She had bare feet, no socks, and while they're watching TV, you know, they're looking at the screen, and her feet are kind of in the way of the screen, and this guy, he says, you have juice box toes, and she said, what? What what even is that? He says, you have square feet. You you basically have the same feet as Fred Flintstone. And she was like, what is this? Why do I love this guy? Why am I married to him? She had never thought that before in her life. But now she's looking at her feet. I know because they're both looking at her feet. She's looking at them and she's like angry. She's self-conscious. She's thinking Fred Flintstone is a cartoon caveman who is drawn with right angles. And you're saying my feet look like that. She wanted to smack him. But then she looked more at her feet, and her feet per- were pretty square, okay? So she couldn't deny it, especially her big toe. She's like, it is pretty much a perfect square. Now, I bring this up. It's kind of a silly story because it has to do with feet, obviously, but also because sometimes we don't see ourselves the way we really should. Like, of course, we know ourselves. We just don't see how things actually are. We're blinded to certain things. We have a certain bent, right? We have a bias, Now, it's not helpful or necessary to be self-conscious about something like your feet. You don't want to be all thinking about your toes all the time. But the truth is, how we see ourselves is directly connected to how we act, to how we respond to other people, even to how we live in general. I mean, Jane was always thinking twice about wearing open-toed shoes after that moment. But let's think along different lines here something a little bit more applicable. For example, let's say you see yourself as a smart person, right? I would say about half of you are above average in smarts. It'll bother you when you can't figure something out, right? You'll be like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be able to know this. Or when you don't know something, it'll kind of stick with you. Or when someone else thinks they're smarter than you, it'll offend your pride a little bit. Or let's say you see yourself as a leader. In certain group situations, you'll start telling people what to do. You'll try to take charge, and if people don't follow you, you'll feel hurt by that. Now, if you're a Christian here today, and I know many of you are, there are a ton of ways you should see yourself. Like when you see yourself as a Christian, that means certain things. So for example, it means you should see yourself as a sinner to a certain extent. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? You're someone who needed salvation. You needed Christ because you were a sinner. You were separated from God. So if you understand that you are a sinner, it should affect the way that you live, right? You should be, you know, a little bit more humble with other people, not so judgmental because we're all sinners together. You should be, you know, not so prideful in your own religious performance, knowing that it wasn't you who saved yourself. It was Jesus who saved you. You should also see yourself not just as a sinner, but as a saint, forgiven, redeemed. You'll, you, you should have this confidence, right? That even though you're a sinner, you can come to God. You can worship him. You can know him. You can pray to him. You can boldly approach the throne of grace, sinner and saint. Those are two things. 
But let me ask you today, do you view yourself as a servant? Christian, do you view yourself as a servant? And if you do, what do you think should naturally flow out of that? I am a servant, therefore I act this way, I live this way, I do these things. What are those things? See, we're dropping right down into the middle of John. And John, I would say, is a very difficult book. On the one hand, it's very simple. It's easy to read. New believers are always pointing to John. On the other hand, it's probably the craziest book in the Bible. It's so deep. It's so layered. But here, just to kind of give you kind of a a sense of where we're at, we're dropping down right into the middle of this book. So basically, you could split up John into two halves to kind of get you situated. The first half is Jesus's public ministry. That's when he's out doing things, teaching with authority, doing signs and wonders, opening up the eyes of the blind. That's when he talks to like the Samaritan woman at the well, talks to Nicodemus, all these things, the stories you know and love. But halfway through about everything shifts and the time slows down. And basically the second half of the book takes place over just a few days. A lot of it just over a few hours. The last night before Jesus is crucified. And we're here at the beginning of the second half. And this slow down private ministry kind of part of John starts with this story that we just read, a very famous story where Jesus decides to wash his disciples' feet. So, okay, let's get into it. We'll move quicker today than usual, but we'll still break down the text into three parts. So first, the example, the example, which is about where Jesus wants us to look. Okay, his disciples, where he wants his followers to look. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Okay, now we read the whole thing. We read the context, first 11 verses. So we know what Jesus did. He had taken off his outer garment, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, filled a basin with water, and then began to wash his disciples' feet. Now, just some context. This was a society where people walked everywhere. Okay, maybe you had an animal, but by and large, you walked along unpaved, dusty roads, usually. This was a world without showers. This was a world where people did not wear closed-toed shoes and socks. So basically, you would put on your sandals and you would go about your day. You would walk in the dirt, in the sand, on the same road that all these animals were walking and doing their business on. You would walk through mud if it rained, right? You would walk through every single thing you could imagine with your bare toes out every single day, miles and miles. By the time you got home, and settled in for your evening meal or whatever it might be, or for sleep, your feet would be caked with a mixture of grime and sweat and everything else that was on the road. Foot washing, therefore, was kind of disgusting because feet were a billion times dirtier in those days. Feet were disgusting. So to wash them, to have to touch them was gross, to use the theological term. And this is why it was also necessary, okay? Because dirty feet needed to be clean, especially if you're going to be socializing, if you're going to lay down in your bed, right? You needed to wash your feet. So if you put two and two together, right? It was the worst task you could possibly think of, but it had to be done. Therefore, foot washing was given usually to the lowest servant. That's the context But then Jesus, in John 13, he doesn't call for the lowest servant to come and to wash the feet. 
Instead, he decides that he is going to wash the disciples' feet himself. Now, what do you think the 12 disciples were thinking? You don't have to guess. Peter speaks out as he usually does. They were shocked by this. It was jarring to them. Uh, Peter even thought that it was wrong. He protests. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? This is bad. This is wrong. This shouldn't happen. Simon Peter rightly calls him Lord, which in Greek is kurios. It means master, the opposite of a servant. Jesus not only did not have the lowest status, he had the highest status in the entire group. He should be the furthest away from anyone's feet. Peter understands the social dynamic. It's why he speaks up. But Jesus insists. He insists. So what's the point here? What's the point here? Are we supposed to be exactly like Jesus in this way? Find 12 guys. Call them to follow me. Right, Take them around for three years, teach them some stuff, and then at dinner, before we get crucified, wash their dirty feet. I don't think that that's the lesson, probably because none of us are the Messiah. But even what about the foot washing? I've heard of some churches that say, well, we should start washing each other's feet And we should take it almost as a sacrament of sorts that Christians should go through this ritual of foot washing. But again, my question is, is that the point? Because what does Jesus say in verse 12? He says, to begin our passage, he says, do you understand what I'm doing? Do you get it? Pay attention. Understand the dynamic. No one wanted to do this thing, but it needed to be done. Therefore, usually the lowest of the low would do it. But here, Jesus, the highest of the high, does. And then he says, do the same thing. He calls his disciples, his followers, Christians, us, to do the same thing. So think about it like this. What's something that no one wants to do that has to be done? What's something that nobody wants to do that has to be done? There's a lot of things like that. There are so many things like that. Now, on top of that, think, who normally does it? I mean, some people do these things, these undesirable jobs, whatever came to your mind because they needed the money, maybe. Maybe they do it because of the role they're in. What came to mind for me was changing kids' diapers, right? No one wants to do it. I don't want to do it, and I don't want to do your kids' diapers at all. But for my kids, I still don't want to do it, but I do it because no one else is going to do it, right? I have to do it. Maybe Christine can do it, right? Thank you, Christine. None of us want to do it. We probably wish someone else would do it. But at the end of the day, who's going to take care of our kids but us? It's our responsibility. But see, Jesus chooses to do the thing that no one wants to do, and it's not his responsibility. Do you see this? No one forces him. In fact, no one even asks him to do it. He wants to do, he chooses to do what no one wants. Think about it. And then think about church. Because we are talking about serving in the church. This was with the leaders, future leaders of the church plus Judas. Think about church. This is so important. We know that in Christian community, the fellowship of the saints, right? The gathering, whatever uh, you want to call it, there are needs. There are needs that require time and energy, qualification sometimes, and gifting. 
To hear the word of God, you need a preacher. To take communion, you need someone to administer it, but also you need someone to buy the elements. You need people to pass them out, to give them to people. To sing, you need someone to play an instrument, to to lead the vocals, or at the very least to press play on YouTube so you can sing along to Chris Tomlin or whoever. You need someone there to do these things, to worship God, to, to do ministry. Churches, to function, require people to give and to help staff and volunteers. Now, if we're kind of opening up the hood of how this usually works, churches go about this all different ways. And you probably have seen this in your own experience. But some churches, what they try to do is they just try to hire as much staff as possible to do it. And the reason why is because it feels bad to ask volunteers. You don't want to burn people out. So you hire as many people as you can. You have a person who's their full-time job is to like do the AV or, or to stay afterwards to make sure everything is locked up and to sweep and things like that. You hire support staff. You hire as many pastors as you can. Others, what they try to do is they try to get rid of all the official serving in the church as much as they can, right? So they do sing along to like a track on the computer, right? They, they don't have official greeters. They just say, hey, greet one another. They give some time for that, things like that. They might even, and then other churches, I think the majority of churches, what they do is they go the old fashioned route of just trying to get more volunteers to help. They might even like preach a sermon on serving. They might even do like a fair for ministry or something like that. But there are problems here. One is that burnout of volunteers is a real thing because the needs are endless. Okay, as long as church is going on, there are going to be needs. And two, the question of how to encourage people to serve when it's tiring, when it's difficult, when they have so much going on in life, it's not an easy question to answer. It's not an easy problem to solve. So again, do we talk about giftedness? Do we talk about needs? Do I get up here and say, hey, we need 40 more volunteers for children's ministry. What, you don't care about kids? Jesus said, let the little children come to me, but you don't want them to come to you? Let's close in prayer. Right, we, I don't do that. I don't do that. Maybe next year I will. Maybe next year I will. Look, neither way is wrong per se. There are needs. It's important to meet those needs. You are gifted. And it's important that you use those gifts to serve God. But in John 13, it's totally different. Because those two ways, if you boil it down, it comes down to what do you want to do and what needs to be done, right? What do you want to do? What do you need to do? But Jesus doesn't set that example here. In verse 13, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I didn't need to do this. Verse 14, if I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus gives this example. He models a different way. Our Lord and teacher does the lowliest task that no one wants to, not because he needs to, not because he's forced to, not because he's even asked to, but because he chooses to do so. Now, turn with me to Luke 22. Just one book back. Luke chapter 22. And this takes place the same night. Luke 22. We'll start in verse 24. Luke 22, verse 24. I'll give you one more second. I still hear some pages turning. Luke 22, 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. These are the same 12 guys. 
And he, being Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Who's greater, the person who's waiting to be waited on or the waiter? Who's greater, the master or the servant? Jesus says, obviously, it's the master, but I am among you as a servant. See, notice the difference in how the disciples are thinking and how Jesus is. They are arguing about who is the greatest among them. Which one of us is the best? Who's most special? Who is most worthy of respect? But Jesus knows what they're thinking when they think greatness. He thinks you're thinking, okay, who's going to be relaxing? Who's going to be doing what they want to do? Who's going to be served? But he says, that's not greatness at all. The greatness in God's kingdom, uh, the greatest, excuse me, in God's kingdom are those who serve. Jesus is Lord and teacher, yes, but he is among them as one who serves. That's how, that's how he views himself. And he wants us, he wants those who claim to be his disciples, who profess faith in him, who follow him, to view ourselves in light of this. He calls us to look at his example so that we can view ourselves differently. I am here to serve. I'm here to serve. It's not about what I want first and foremost. I'm here to serve. It's not about me having to do something or not having to do something. Like if I don't do it, how's it going to get done? Don't think like that. Instead, think I am here to serve. It's not about me at all. It's not even about this church. It's about how can I serve as Christ served? It's about being like my Lord. And this leads to the second point. Next point. Back to John 13. Go back to John 13. The expectation. The example, Jesus sets it. He gets down and he washes the disciples' dirty feet. The expectation, verse 13 again. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. They are not above him. Therefore, they should at least do what he did. See, the truth was the disciples were not even thinking about washing anyone's feet. They get into this room, the upper room. There's only 13 people there, 12 disciples and Jesus. There's no servant there to wait on them or to wash their feet. Literally, none of those 12 guys thought, okay, well, maybe I'm the least here, you know, like Jesus, at least I'll wash Jesus's feet. He's the master. I'm a disciple. Not one of them thought about getting up or taking off their outer garment or filling up a basin. None of them even thought about washing their master's feet, much less each other's. It wasn't on their radar. It's not how they were thinking. It didn't occur to them, even though they were commoners, fishermen and the like. This task was beneath them. They didn't view themselves as servants at all. Now, let me tell you a story. I have a friend who's a pastor. And he was telling me how there was a younger guy, seminary student at his church, and he had kind of taken him under his wing a little bit. He was trying to mentor him. Uh, and they had a good relationship. Uh, and this guy was training to be a future preacher and pastor and minister of the gospel. And he's going to seminary and he was learning Greek and Hebrew and all these things. 
And then one day, kind of in the middle of this process of training, and he had been serving in church, doing all these different things, he came to the elders and he said, look, um, I'm just really tired right now. Like, I'm just doing all these things. Classes are, are killing me right now. Can I take a break from serving uh, just for the time, you know, just for a season, uh, and then I'll get back into it. But I just need to, you know, take care of what I need to take care of. And, of course, the elders were like, of course, right? No problem. Right? You're training to do these things. Greek and Hebrew are hard. We totally understand. We went through the same thing. Why don't you take a break and rest for a little while? Anyway, soon after this, I don't remember the exact details, but I'll give you the gist. The preaching pastor was going to be out of town or something like that. And he sat down with the staff, everyone who was kind of able to preach. And he said, look, I want to be out of town unexpectedly. Can one of you fill the pulpit for me and preach? And the seminary student jumped at the chance. He said, I will. I would love to be able to preach. And my friend's like, no, I'm going to talk to this guy afterwards. So he talked to him afterward. But let me ask you before I tell you what he said, what do you think, what do you think he was thinking? Right? Like, what was wrong here? Why did my pastor friend pull the seminary student aside afterward and decide to make this a teachable moment? See, my friend saw that in the student, the expectation was wrong. He viewed himself as a preacher only, and that's part of the equation. But he wasn't just training to be a preacher. He was training to be a pastor, which means a shepherd of people. And also it meant a minister. And if you don't know, uh, I don't know if this is common knowledge. The original word for minister just means servant. He was training to be a servant. My friend wasn't saying that this guy needed to burn himself out. He wasn't all harsh with him or anything like that. But he wanted him to understand that it should never be that a minister be too tired to serve and yet not too tired to preach. And this is how seminary students are, just putting it out there, right? In seminary, we think it's going to be so great, or right? we're going to get up here and we're going to preach the word and everyone's going to love it and they're going to come to faith and they're going to grow and they're going to say, great job, preacher. Uh, that's what he thought. But I would tell him, like, look, it's more like you're like a stationary target up here. So uh, be careful what you wish for. But anyway, we're servants. We're servants. Preaching is serving. It's not putting on a show. It's not here so that I could get your applause or anything like that. It's serving the body of Christ by bringing the word of God. It's all service. Setting up chairs, greeting, playing music. You're not putting on a concert. You're serving the people. It's service. So here's the question. How do you view yourself? And look, I don't want to be too harsh on that guy. He took it to heart. He's a pastor now. I think he's doing great. And I know I've been the same. I think sometimes... The, the pastors, the ministers are the ones who are least servant minded. In fact, Eric talked to me one time because I was kind of complaining about how I had to like set up chairs or sweep or something like that. I was like, dude, why did I learn Greek to do all this stuff? Why don't we just have some like normal Christian do this? And Eric called me out on it once. He said, you know, I know you hate doing these things, but what else are we here for if we're not going to do it? And that was pretty much the end of my friendship with Eric, right? Uh, how dare he? No, I'm kidding. Send him away to Costa Rica, right? Get out of here. Um, no, I'm thankful for friends like that because he kind of helped me see myself rightly again, right? You're not here. You're not some like higher up person. You're a minister. You're a servant. How do you view yourself? What else are we here for? Verse 16. 
Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That's just the truth. It's why Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's real talk. No Christian disciple is greater than Jesus. See, the difference is Jesus is Lord and teacher, and he still chose to do the lowliest task. We actually are servants. So what are we going to choose to do? In fact, turn with me back to Luke. Let's go to Luke 17. This is important to see, I think. Luke 17. You know, it's easy to forget who we actually are. It's easy to forget what these words mean. We talk about ministry. Okay, We talk about ministry, which is related to the word minister, which means servant. We don't always think of it as serving. We talk about deacons as these higher-up leaders in the church, and they are leaders, and they are worthy of respect. But the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means, again, servant. And then we talk about serving. How can I serve? A lot of people ask that. How can I serve? I'm signed up to serve this week. I'm willing to serve in any way. But what are we talking about? Look at Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Now, this is a reality check. Servants in that day and age served. It wasn't just their job. It was their full-time identity in a lot of ways. It was who they were. After working hard all day, they didn't say to the master, no, it's five o'clock. I'm not serving anymore. I'm off the clock, right? I clocked out. They don't say that. The master didn't, didn't say when they came and, oh, you poor servant, good job working so hard. It's time to come chill with us. We got the TV on. Let me heat you up some food. No, he said, okay, well, now that you're back from the field, it's time to serve dinner, right? You're a servant. Serve. That's what servants do. Look at verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Servants serve because that's what servants do. That's the point that Jesus is making in Luke 17. Servanthood is antithetical to entitlement. It's not something that works with your schedule. It doesn't care how you feel, and it doesn't even deserve thanks. So anyway, uh, who wants to serve? We have a lot of opportunities out there. Uh, I'm sure just hearing that, it sounds kind of harsh. It's jarring even. And it was jarring for people to hear this. Everything about what Jesus was saying and doing was disorienting for his disciples. But with that in mind, let's go back to John 13 and think about what Jesus did again. Servants, they serve. They do the lowliest tasks. They don't complain about it. They don't expect thanks. Jesus, on the night before he is crucified, he takes the posture of the lowliest of the low. Now, this is why Peter is so offended by this, I think. If you look at verse 6 again, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
So then Simon Peter is funny. He says, oh, if that's the case, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. But see, Peter doesn't quite get it. Jesus even says that. You don't understand now. Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection, his work of salvation. He's saying, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, if you want to share with me, then you need to be served by me. There's no other way. You can't save yourself. You need to receive salvation from me. Peter will get that later. But there is a connection with what Jesus is doing here. Jesus might not have washed our feet literally, but Jesus has served us. And that is literal. He didn't wash the dirt and grime off of our feet, but if you're a Christian, he has washed the sins of your heart and soul away by his blood. See, I asked the question, how do you view yourself? And if you're a Christian, you might say, I view myself as a Christian. Well, if you view yourself as a Christian, then understand that you are, by definition, someone who has been served by your master. You have been washed clean by the precious blood of the Son of God. You have been served by the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who created you. He gave his life for you. And now the expectation is not that you would do something that he would never do. No, it's to walk in his steps. He says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. But what did he do first? He took up his cross. He denied himself. And he walked ahead. It's an identity shift, but this is the expectation that we would look to Christ as our savior and as our example, and we would follow him. If we are Jesus followers, then we would follow Jesus. It's not just about the needs of the church or your gifts, as important as those things are. It's about our identity and our walk and our discipleship as Christians Why should Christians serve? Because we are servants. It reminds me of this song from Beauty and the Beast. Um, Do you guys remember that movie, the Disney one? Uh, Not the one uh, with real people, but the cartoon one. Uh, When Belle first goes to the Beast Castle, um, and she sees all these like talking candles and clocks and stuff. Lumiere, the candle, uh, he serves her food, right? They serve her food, and they sing this song. And there's uh, some lines in the song. Listen to this. You'll remember this. But he sings, life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. All uh, ah, those good old days when we were useful, suddenly those good old days are gone. He's like, life is kind of terrible for us because we're servants who haven't been able to serve. Servants serve. So, Think about it like this. If you're not serving in some capacity or some way, why? Like, what's going on? Why is that? If you're not looking to be useful to Christ and to his people, what does that mean? Why is that happening? If you're not unnerved that no one is being helped by you, again, what does that mean? And this leads to the third and final point, the execution the execution, which is about the blessing of all of this. In sports, right? Um, I know some of you hate sports, but just it's an illustration, okay? In sports, coaches, especially when they lose, love to talk about execution. They don't want to take responsibility, right, for having a terrible plan. Because, you know, in professional sports, you always have a plan. You have a game plan. But when they lose, they say, well, we had a good plan, but the players didn't execute it. 
They didn't do what needed to be done. And there is some truth to this. See, what it means is you might know what to do, but if you don't do it, you're going to lose. And if you look at the last part of our passage, John 13, 17, quickly now, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you do them, okay? You don't have to get into the Greek here or anything. It's straightforward and simple. The blessing comes in the doing. Now, turn with me to Matthew 21. I know we're going around a little bit, but let's look at Matthew 21. Matthew 21, starting in verse 28, a parable that Jesus told. Matthew 21, 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe it. Now he's talking about salvation, but the point is pretty clear. There's a difference between these two approaches. One son says that he will go, doesn't go. One son says he won't go, but then he actually does go. Who served the father? It's the one who actually went. See, the blessing is in the doing. It's not in the saying. It's not in the signing up. It's not in the intention. The blessing is in the doing. So this is where we're kind of going to end this or start to end this. Even if you feel like, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm not really serving people, right? I'm not really viewing myself as a servant. Maybe I've been a little prideful or maybe I've just been busy. I haven't thought about it, but I want to serve now. The blessing isn't in the wanting to serve, even though that's good. The blessing isn't in the conviction that you feel, even though that's good too. The blessing is in the doing. It's in the doing. It's in the serving. Now, last time we're going to move, let's go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This is when Paul sees the Ephesian elders for the last time. He gives kind of a farewell address to them. Um, And there's a lot to unpack here in Acts 20, but I just want to go to the very end or toward the end. Let's go to verse 34 or maybe 33. Actually, maybe 32, okay? Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The blessing is in the giving, not the receiving. And we will get into the Greek here. The word for blessed is the word makarios. And what that means, well, it could be translated also as happy. There is joy. There is more joy in giving than in getting. And there is more joy 
in serving, in doing the serving, than in being served. See, a lot of people aren't happy with church. And I understand a church is not perfect. People are not perfect. People are sinful. The leaders are not perfect. There's a lot of hurt in church. Okay, let's just get that right out there. But I also know this. A lot of people haven't tried what Jesus said. The blessing, the happiness, makarios, it's in the doing. It's in the serving. And what did Jesus do? He washed his disciples' feet. It's putting yourself out there and just doing the lowest thing. Not because you're forced to, not because you're even gifted to do it, but because that's just how Jesus is and we follow him. I mean, if you're not happy with church, just be honest with yourself. Have I tried to just give and to serve? Have I tried to listen to what Jesus said? Like, no one talked to me, right? Well, have you tried to talk to some people? Maybe some people who are alone. Just finding out what's, nothing about you. Not even, I'm going to make a friend. Just, can I bless this person by reaching out to them in some way? You know what I mean? Uh, no one is, thinks about me or, or no one prays for me. Have you prayed for someone? No one serves me. No one helps you with my kids. Have you offered to help someone with their kids? Have you thought about the blessing of giving over receiving? Have you thought about the blessing of serving over being served? See, it's more blessed to actively work against entitlement in your own heart. It's more blessed to commit to something that stretches you, that pushes you out of what you feel like is normal for your status, to something uh, that's inconvenient even, something that's uncomfortable. It's more blessed to not expect thanks. It's more blessed to just give of yourself and not expect so much back. And that's what I want for you guys. Like at the end of the day, I don't think it matters so much if Zoe can do all these ministries. We'll just do what we can do, right? We're just one church, one local church. We'll try to be faithful. But in terms of your own spiritual lives, I think that this is the important thing, that all of you understand the blessing of being servants like Jesus. That's what Jesus wants for you. Who cares what I want? That's what Jesus wants for you. There's a blessing in service. There's a happiness in it. Because when we follow his example and meet his expectations and execute his will, we follow him and we honor him as Lord. Now we'll close with this. At Zoe, right, we always talk about like, oh, we try to downplay things. We're not the fanciest church. And that kind of makes us so if we mess up in any way, then we kind of cover ourselves. We're, we're a simple church, right? We just want to preach the word. And you know, we aren't that fancy. We can't afford a fog machine or all these things. We're about the preaching of God's word above all. And not even the preacher, right? It's not about man. It's about God. It's about the preaching of God's word. As long as someone is doing it, and the reason why we're into this is because we're from John MacArthur Seminary, not to name drop, but we shook hands twice. Um, but he's a famous preacher. He's known for, you know, expository preaching. The church is known for being a model church, Grace Community Church. Um, but what's interesting, okay, and I'm going to leave you with this. What's interesting is that the first time people ever heard about John MacArthur outside of kind of that small area, Okay, the first time people ever heard about Grace Community Church, kind of on a bigger picture scale, had nothing to do or nothing explicitly to do with John MacArthur's, John MacArthur's preaching. Did you know that? The first article ever written about this church, first of many, 
was by this guy named Lowell Saunders from this like moody magazine that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but he had heard about Grace Church and kind of the thriving ministry there. And he went to go visit. And what he saw there, it inspired him to write an article about the church. And what he called the church was, or what he called the article was, it wasn't like greatest preacher of all time or future preaching superstar. It was called the church with 900 ministers. The church with 900 ministers. No one told him to say that. It wasn't PR. That's what he came up with. And that's what originally put John MacArthur on the map. Now, don't misunderstand. The church did not have 900 staff. The church did not have 900 pastors officially. The church did not have 900 people who are even official members of like different ministries and stuff like that. The church just had 900 people. But what he saw there was that the people, each person that he saw was involved in serving in some way. The saints ministered to each other. They did the work. He saw people watching each other, uh, watching each other's kids. He saw people serving cups of water and coffee. He saw people praying for one another after service. He saw people picking up trash. He saw people checking in on the sick, vacuuming the rug, the church of 900 ministers. So how can we get to 900? Just kidding. It's not about the qual- uh, the quantity. It's about the quality. However many people we have here, I don't even know, like 150, 200. How can we be the church of 200 ministers? Because you heard the scripture reading. True greatness is found in serving. And again, I downplay it. We're a simple church. But you know what? I think we should try to be a great church in God's eyes. And that doesn't mean the fanciest. Doesn't even mean the most gifted or biggest or anything like that. How can we be a church that serves as we have been served? How can we be a church where everyone is a servant? Be who you are. Embrace being a servant and find the blessing in it. Will you pray with me? God, we are so thankful for the opportunity to serve you. God, we know that it's not a way for us to earn our salvation. God, we know we have been saved because we have been served. Because Jesus, your son, came to give his life as a ransom for many, a ransom for us. And God, I pray that we would respond to that. God, I pray that you would help us. And God, I know that many of my brothers and sisters here do serve. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray for those who aren't involved in official ways. I just pray that they would take whatever opportunities they get. It doesn't have to be through a ministry or something like that, a church. But I just pray, God, that we would approach the body of Christ with the posture of a servant. That we would try to put others above ourselves. God, that we would try to just give a little bit. And I pray, God, that we would receive the blessing of that. You are so gracious to bless us, God. We thank you. We praise you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.